0: Chapter 2 of the Sign of the Cross in the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dom Noah Morbeg. The Sign of the Cross in the Nineteenth Century by Jean Gamet, translated by a daughter of Saint Joseph. Chapter 2 second letter examination of the question prepossession in favor of the early christians first prepossession their lights second their sanctity third the practice of true christians in every age were the fathers of the church great geniuses november 27th my dear friend in ordinary cases the exterior circumstances play an important part They often have the value of direct testimonies in contributing to form the opinion of judges. You know that they thus examine the antecedents, position, and moral character of persons interested in the debate. Why should we pass them over in the case which occupies us? Therefore, before adducing the motives of the early Christians drawn from the very nature of the sign of the cross, let us examine together the prepossessions which militate in favor of their conduct first prepossession in favor of the early christians they were contemporaries with the apostles the apostles had conversed with the incarnate word himself the truth in person they had seen him with their eyes and touched him with their hands they were the depositaries and infallible organs of his doctrine they had been commanded to teach it fully and entirely nothing more nothing less In their turn the primitive Christians had seen and heard the Apostles and their disciples. From their lips they had received the faith, from their hands baptism. They had imbibed truth at its very fountain. With this truth, to which they owed everything, they nourished themselves, they made it the rule of all their actions, and preserved it with inviolable fidelity. Preservantes in Doctrina Apostolorum Evidently, none had better opportunities of knowing the thoughts of the Apostles, and even our Saviour Himself. If the primitive Christians made the sign of the cross, at every instant, we are forced to conclude that they obeyed an apostolic recommendation. Otherwise, the Apostles and their immediate successors, the infallible guardians of the triple deposit of faith, morals, and discipline, would have speedily interdicted a useless and superstitious custom, so well calculated to expose the neophytes to the mockery of the ignorant pagans. Therefore, I repeat it, in making so frequently the sign of the cross, the Christians of the primitive church acted on very good reasons. This is the first preposition in favor of their conduct. Second preposition in favor of the primitive Christians, their sanctity. Not only were they well instructed in the doctrine of the apostles, but they were, moreover, most faithful to put it in practice. The proof of this is that they were very holy. Nothing is more clearly established than that a high degree of sanctity was the general character of the first Christians. First, they preferred to lose everything, their property and life itself, in the midst of tortures, rather than offend God. Their heroism lasted as long as the persecutions, that is, for three centuries. Secondly, they were very charitable, heaven and earth have united in eulogizing their mutual love unparalleled in the annals of the world they had but one heart and one soul cor unum et anima una has god himself said behold how they love one another and how ready they are to die for one another vide ut in se diligant et ut pro altiutro mori sint parati exclaimed the pagans. Thirdly, they were filled with respectful love for the apostles, whom they obeyed with filial submission. St. Paul, who paid no compliments, writes to the Christians of Rome that their faith is celebrated throughout the entire world, and to those of Asia that they loved him so much that had it been possible they would have plucked out their eyes to give them to him. At his request, all the churches fly to the help of the brethren of Jerusalem, and Philemon receives Onsimus. Fourthly, the fathers of the church, who were eyewitnesses, have continually rendered the most brilliant testimony to their sanctity. Addressing himself to the judges, praetors, and proconsuls of the empire, Tertullian gave them this solemn challenge Quote, I appeal to your law processes magistrates charged with the administration of justice among the multitudes of accused who are daily arraigned at the bar of your tribunals is there a prisoner an assassin a profaner a corrupter or a thief who is a christian it is your people who fill your prisons it is yours that fill the mines it is yours that fatten the beats of the amphitheater it is yours who form the troops of gladiators among them there is not one christian unless he be there for the sole crime of christianity quote. fifthly the pagan historians recognized their innocence and their very persecutors rendered homage to their virtue tacitus the author far too exacting and unjust with regard to our fathers relates the frightful butchery of the Christians under Nero. An immense multitude, says he, multitudo ingents, perished amid the most frightful torments. They were innocent of that with which they were charged, but they were worthy of the hatred of mankind. Odio generis humani. Behold the word. What was this mankind of Tacitus? He himself tells us, it was living filth, living cruelty. What caused this hatred? Because evil is the irreconcilable enemy of good. The sanctity of our fathers was the relentless condemnation of the monstrous crimes with which the pagans sullied themselves. Thence came Nero's butchers and his living torches. Forty years after Nero, Pliny the younger, governor, Of Bithynia is charged by Trajan to inform against the Christians. Zealous courtier, he rigorously executes his master's orders and causes our ancestors to be sought after. When put to the torture, he himself interrogates them. What is the result of his bloody proceedings? All the crime of the Christians, writes he to Terjan. consists in assembling together on a certain day before dawn in order to sing the praises of christ as of a god in binding themselves by oath not to commit any crime but to fly theft robbery adultery and perjury i have caused them to be put to the torture and have found them guilty of nothing but an evil and excessive superstition End quote i have been expiating my dear frederick on the sanctity of our ancestors in my mind it forms the most powerful prepossession in favour of the sign of the cross when men of this character living in the face of death show themselves invariably faithful to a usage it must be that that usage is a little more important than your new companions believe third preposition in favour of the primitive christians the practice of true christians in the following centuries at a very early period there began to be formed both in the east and in the west religious communities of men and of women it is in those asylums separated from the world that we find the true spirit of the gospel and the pure tradition of apostolic teachings if not permanent at least perpetuated with the greatest fidelity the sign of the cross Figures among the number of ancient customs preserved with jealous care. Our fathers, the ancient monks, writes one of their historians, quote, practiced the sign of the cross most frequently and religiously. They made it principally at rising, retiring to bed, before their work, in coming out of their cells and the monastery, or returning to it. They made it at table, over the bread the wine, and every dish. In the world, in like manner, we find the traditional usage of this saving sign. All those great men, who, during more than five hundred years, succeeded one another in the East and in the West, those incomparable geniuses, whom we call the fathers of the Church, Tertullian, Cyprian, Athanasius, Gregory, Basil, Augustine, Chrysostom, Jerome, Ambrose, and so many others, who swell the list so terrible to pride, which it crushes by its weight, all those great intelligences practiced the sign of the cross most assiduously, and they incessantly recommended all Christians to make it on every occasion. I have called the fathers of the Church great geniuses and great men, if, as such, you compare them to your companions expect a smile of pity be not angry with them poor young men they know the fathers of the church as they know their antipodes in your turn ask them what they understand by great men in default of their reply here is mine it may be useful to you i call great men those who by the elevation depth and extent of their genius embrace the immense horizons of the world of truth who know sciences men and things not on the surface but in their principles and an intimate nature not only the matters below but the spirit above not only the man but the angel not only the creature but the creator not only what is on this side of the grave but what is beyond it not one detail but the whole, not one isolated law of creation, but the whole system, from which they cause to spring unexpectedly luminous applications for the perfection of humanity. Behold genius, and behold the fathers of the church. You can challenge your companions to find among the ancients or modern any who have verified better, or as well, the definition of a great man. However renowned they may be in particular departments, in chemistry, physics, mechanics, or art, they are neither geniuses nor great geniuses. The man whose ideas embrace only one law, secondary to universal harmony, deserves not the name of genius. No one calls great the musician who can draw but one sound from his instrument, but only him who strikes harmoniously every chord. Time does not permit me to finish my letter tonight. I will resume it tomorrow. End of chapter 2